It's another day where we're talking about Congressman Jim Jordan on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. The audience really seems to like when we talk about Jim Jordan. We get a lot more listens. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jen Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson. Happy Wednesday. It is Wednesday, right? (laughs) It is Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get started. Did Congressman Jim Jordan actually vote against a bill aimed at reducing hate crimes directed at Asian Americans? Seth Richardson, for about half of his explanation, he seemed to have a little bit of credibility. But by the time he finished talking, he had no credibility. Yeah. So the House of Representatives passed a bill that was aimed at combating the uh, rise in uh, hate crimes, hate crimes seen toward Asian Americans. Mostly involves collecting data and encouraging uh, the adoption of the National Incident Based Reporting System, which is a way for uh, kind of, you know, to, to, to gather more data essentially on these hate crimes and also authorizes the U.S. Attorney General to make grants to help law enforcement respond to these hate crimes. Uh, you know, Jordan basically came out and said that, he, you know, he called it, uh, he said that the state, it was asking state governments to act as the quote speech police. And creates a precedent that could extend to any manner of things someone may deem offensive. You know, basically, he was saying that he is against the data collection. And, you know, it's kind of the slippery slope argument, right? Like, well, if you're, you know, collecting data on this, like, what's to stop you from collecting data on another thing? But then in his, you know, kind of trademark fashion, right, uh, essentially slipped into saying that, well, this is a Democrat problem anyway, because, you know, a, a violence against Asian Americans is happening in Democratic controlled cities. And these Democratic controlled cities defunded the police, which is, you know, just, they're just it's not ridiculous. true. Nobody's defunded. Yeah. It's just stupid. The, the, the His argument that that by not setting reporting standards, this could be a wild west of reporting you know, that would almost sound like that's worth looking at. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's but when he came out and said Democrat controlled cities that defunded police, I mean, that's just not true. That's stupid. It's 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 lying on the floor of Congress, making stuff up to the constituents and shame on him for doing it. It's just not the case. Plus, there's been anti Asian American violence outside of cities. It's just a dumb thing for him to say. Can I jump in here, please? Jane Cahoon. Yeah, I just, the other thing he said was he turned it into a defense of Trump again. He made it a, oh, big bad Republicans picking on Trump again. Like, oh, that Trump, he tried to defend Trump and say he did not incite any violence against Asian Americans when he used the derogatory terms to describe the coronavirus um, because of its origins in China. And, and um, you know, it's just, it, I mean, as you said, there's one argument maybe to be had about this, but he just basically turned it into, oh, you're, you're picking on Trump. Which is, again, preposterous. Donald Trump did with his constant attacks on China in the face of experts telling him this is going to incite anti-Asian American violence. He did. I mean, the, the result was, from what he said, it, it, it happened that way. And for, for Jordan, a member of Congress representing Ohio, to stand up and say that's false, it, you know, it's like what a lot of people are trying to do now to say January 6th never happened. Which boggles the mind because all of America could see it happen. Everybody saw it with their own eyes and trying to trot that back and say, you know, that's all been made up is is just silly. 
uh, Jim Jordan once again leads a charge on something that's embarrassing for the state. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the good news out of the Ohio legislature about bail reform? And that's something we've been advocating at Cleveland.com for more than five years through our Justice for All series. Jane Cahoon, this is a big step forward. It is. The the good news is we have bipartisan legislation, which we know is important in our legislature because it's dominated by one party. And it's it's always good when you can get agreement on on something by both sides. But we have bills in both the House and the Senate that were unveiled on Tuesday. And they both they're twin bills, basically, that seek to overhaul the bail system, which, as you said, Chris, we've been pushing for this because the current system, it basically decides unfairly who stays behind bars based on the amount of money that they have, not really whether they should be there or not while they're awaiting trial. So this would give judges the leeway to determine within 24 hours of someone's arrest whether they should be released. And within 48 hours of an arrest, a judge would be required to hold a what's called a conditions of release hearing And that's where the judge would decide whether to set bail or impose some other kind of restrictions like GPS monitoring or some kind of probation requirement uh, requirements. Apparently, there are a number of options. But, you know, right right now they do already have an Ohio Supreme Court rule that requires judges to set what's called the least restrictive conditions necessary to keep the public safe. But these bills would put that in state law rather than just in these court rules. And for the first time, judges would be also required to put into writing their reasoning behind their conditions of release that that they set. So uh, and if if they do decide to set bail, there's going to be, you know, a formula that that takes into consideration a defendant's in income, expenses, debts, you know, resources, et cetera. So it's, and that's the bingo that that's yeah. that's where fairness enters the system. First, you shouldn't do bail. You should figure out another way to release people. But if the judge says the only way this person's coming back is if there's money on the table, assessing it based on their personal finances instead of some ridiculous schedule based on the level of crime, it takes away the unfairness because we know from our series, poor people cannot afford the bail. Rich people can can get out of jail almost immediately because it's not based on on means. And that's a big one. The, the, the other big one is making the judges explain their reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, judges... There's a lot of thought that this system has had a lot of inequity in it, that black defendants get treated much worse than white defendants, making the judges write their list, their list, their reasons for their decisions will reduce that. This is a big deal. Is there any thought that there be opposition to this? Or do you think this will sail through? You know, I think it's going to sail through because both Republicans and Democrats said that they vowed to act quickly on this. Uh, And so that means a lot. And so far, just on the co-sponsors, 45 of the 99 members of the House have already signed on as co-sponsors. And um, it also has the backing of Ohio Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor. She's been supporting this issue for a long time. And so it's just it's got a lot of uh, clout behind it, I think. 
What what really feels good about this to me is when we started our Justice for All series five years ago, we ran into immediate opposition just from the Cuyahoga County judges. They said, we're not doing it. We said, okay, we're going to put every one of you on Front Street, one of you a day, your picture explaining you refuse to explain why you're sticking by it. Then they kind of caved and said, okay, we'll talk about it. (laughs) But the fact that five years later, a bipartisan part of the legislature is moving on it, that's just a big deal. Yes, certainly is. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Cleveland is spending some money on the West Side Market, but is it enough to turn the place around? Laura Johnston, this originally, or kind of immediately sounds like a good thing, but it's really just a mandate. Right. It's not a ton. This is maintenance. This is um, $2.1 million in upgrades. It's part of the city's 2021 capital improvements program, but it's just a piece of the $31 million planned for public buildings, parks, rec centers, and other properties throughout the city. So they're going to replace the exterior doors, improve the electrical system. They'll fix some of the masonry work on the clock tower. There will be some new vendor booths, um, improvements to meat preparation areas used by several butchers, and upgrades to better control the temperature in the building, which, if you've ever been there, is cold in the winter and hot in the summer because there's no heating or air conditioning. So, I mean, this is this is a building that we've been talking about for a long time and making improvements. It's really an iconic structure in Cleveland, and a lot of people have fond memories. I have not been inside since the pandemic started, and I bet a lot of people have not as well. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I'm sorry, folks. I uh, thought I could pull this off today, but this cold I have is causing me to choke and cough uh, off mic. And so I'm going to have to drop out and let Jane, Seth, and Laura finish this. So take it away, Jane. Okay. Feel better, Chris. Uh, So does Ohio have standing to sue the U.S. Census Bureau over its delinquency after all? Seth Richardson, we uh, had a development in this federal case that uh, Dave Yost, was, uh, the attorney general, was pushing. Uh, Tell us what happened. Yeah, federal appeals court uh, did side with Dave Yost and uh, found that he did have standing to sue in this matter. Um, it, It you know, of course, that could obviously change if there are further appeals. Basically, what it did is it sent it back to the district court. Uh, but did find that there there is standing to sue based on the uh, the state wanting to get census data by August 16th in the legacy format, which isn't the full format that they were expecting would come between September 1st and September 30th. Obviously, the you know Ohio running against some uh, constitutional deadlines for redistricting with that uh, you know the September dates. Uh, so it's going back to a district court right now and uh, is going to be kept alive because you know. They basically said you have standing and it's a it's good to keep it alive. The court said this. It's good to keep it alive so that there is some form of redress if the Census Bureau kind of blows past these deadlines. Yeah, I thought they had some pretty strong words. They they told the court, hey, you should act on this expeditiously yeah. to, to get some redress. And they also said, hey, Ohio not only has standing, but, you know, has suffered injury as a result of this delay, which we should point out was a result of coronavirus delays in in getting the census count done. But um, it's interesting. I I don't know how they're going to deal with this raw data that they get, uh, hopefully on August 16th. But I think they're going to have to do some tabulating themselves. But I think maybe they have the experts to do that. And uh, we'll have to see what happens. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
What does Jennifer French have planned now that she's the chair of the embattled Public Utilities Commission of Ohio? Jane Cahoon, Jeremy Peltzer had an interview with Jennifer French. I think it's the first time we've had her talking on Cleveland.com. So what does she say about this embattled public body? Well, she says that she has a main goal of making the agency more transparent, which she thinks is going to go a long way toward what she called, uh, you know, removing the so-called black cloud of the House Bill 6 scandal. So she's succeeding Sam Randazzo, who was regarded as very cozy with with First Energy, the, the beneficiary of the tainted nuclear bailout bill. And in fact, he was revealed as the apparent recipient of this questionable $4 million payment from the utility shortly before Governor Mike DeWine named him to head the PUCO. Um, he also had his house raided by the FBI, although he hasn't been charged with anything. So that's the situation she's coming into. Right. I guess you could say she's got an easy act to follow, but, you know, it's uh, it's it's difficult. So she, she doesn't necessarily even know how Sam Randazzo ran the PUCO, right? I mean, right. she's a former Westerville City Councilwoman and a judge. She's she doesn't have a background in utilities. Right. So I remember when DeWine named her, he said she's known for digging into issues and doing her homework. So it's funny. That's kind of exactly what she told Jeremy. You know, she admitted that she doesn't have a background in utility re regulation, but she said she had to work hard, you know, to learn new subject matters when, when she was on council and when she became a judge. She said, obviously, there's a lot of homework for me to do, and I'm doing all of that, so I feel good about you know where I am now, but I know I have a lot to to learn. But what she basically wants to do is is to try to bring more transparency by sort of pulling back the curtain on the decisions that the PUCO commissioners make and maybe sharing more of their thought process, for example, like the questions that they ask behind the scenes of the staff members. Now, a lot of people could find this extremely boring, well, I think, but, you know, but she said- That's what I was thinking too, yeah. but, but it is really important. I mean, you say PUCO and people probably have no idea what that is, right? Like it's this public body that people are not paying attention to, but they make really big decisions. Like um, the wind farm on Lake Erie, that was right. a poison pill decision that they said yes, but you know, with regulations that would make it impossible, I think feathering it or um, not turning at night. So these do have huge ramifications and the public should pay attention to it. Right. Well, and, and, and we to should be uh, fair, oh, sorry. go Seth ahead. Well, I, I was going to say, to be fair, you know, the, uh, uh, to her not having experience in the public utilities sector, um, you know, Sam Randazzo and the rest of the crew did have experience in the public utilities sector, and you can a lot of a lot of in-depth right. in, inside knowledge of the utility district. Good, so. good point. Yeah, they, they and, were apparently running things out of the Naples Bureau of the state government. So, oh, oh, yeah. oh. so we'll have, to, <laughs> we'll have to see what she does. Um, but yeah, you can check out the interview on Cleveland.com. Um, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Does the city of Cleveland have the power to impose a moratorium on evictions? Laura Johnston, uh, we had a development on this. Yeah, it is a good question because 
I don't know the answer to it. And I don't know that anyone does for sure. There's support from housing advocates and Cleveland Housing Court Judge W. Mona Scott, who says, yes, you should absolutely do this. The moratorium has been this key tool in preventing mass evictions during the pandemic. They, they say that this would give um, time for the outside agency that runs city funnel rental assistance programs, time to catch up on applications. But city officials are also facing a lot of pressure from landlord groups that they want to see the moratorium end. And the mayor's office says the city does not have the authority to enact such a ban. They said they would export, support an extension of the moratorium, but courts have ruled otherwise. So mm. right now, the CDC eviction moratorium is set to expire June 30th. It's unclear whether it would be extended by the federal government or if it's going to actually end sooner because of legal challenges all across the country. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> I think we keep writing about this because it is such a big deal. Yeah, and yeah. We, we predicted a lot of evictions during the pandemic, but this really stopped stop them in their tracks. But there's this question of, you know, does the CDC have the ability to do that? So obviously it's something the courts are looking at. Um, Judge Scott sent a letter to the mayor and the council saying many tenants that have applied for the rental assistance through the program run by CHN Housing Network are still waiting. And that moratorium is necessary to make sure that they have a chance to be heard and for their application to be processed. And she cited some moratoriums in Atlanta, San Francisco, and San Jose as well as this what's called pay-to-stay legislation. It's laws that allow tenants to argue in court that they should stay in their homes if they can immediately pay all the owed rent and late fees. And that actually passed in Toledo and Dayton. So there's some precedent here. I think whatever, if if the city decides to do something, it's probably going to be challenged in court, but that's a question then the courts will decide. Yeah, we'll see if they have the the gumption to do it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Jane Cahoon, how many people signed up for the Vaximillion drawing in the first day this registration site was live yesterday on Tuesday? It went live around 8 a.m., I believe. Well, congratulations for asking me a question I do not know the answer <laughs> to because they haven't told us. They they told us uh, late yesterday that there was going to be an end-of-the-day wrap-up release, but while we, we're recording this now, I have not seen it yet. So I apologize if the release has come out, but uh, I believe they have said that hundreds of thousands of people are showing interest and they have all kinds of page views. And I think, Laura, you saw something that a TV station reported. I did. I saw, this is Laura Johnston. I saw that a TV station had reported there was 25 million hits and that wasn't even at the end of the day Tuesday. But if you've seen our stories, <laughs> Laura Hancock wrote a story that said, if you're having trouble with this website, it says coming soon, you might need to clear your cache. You might need to refresh. I had that trouble yesterday. So I don't know. I must've clicked on it seven or 10 times yesterday. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people clicked multiple times on this website or they were, you know, just, you know, just checking back to see if anything had changed. So I don't know that we can say with 25 million that, you know, that obviously that's more than double Ohio's population that we're seeing outside people checking in. Um, But I think Seth Richardson, you had said that obviously this is an international story. So there could be people around the world just going to see what it's all about. Oh yeah. This is, this story has completely blown up. There are you know, everyone is talking about it as it relates to Ohio, right? And I'm talking, it's not just a national, you know, I, I remember the New York Times, I believe, even putting a push alert out about it, but I'm talking overseas. You know, I was on radio in the UK yesterday and they're fascinated by it. It, it really is kind of a fascinating program when you think about it, right? It's, um, 
you know, everybody, a lot of people have been kind of offering these smaller things, quote unquote, smaller things, right? The, uh, you know, beer shots, whatever, some kind of incentive like that. Uh, you know, here is kind of a way for people to uh, not not only, you know, maybe get something out of it, but have a little of excitement with it too, right? Because we've all bought lottery tickets and, you know, it's always fun, you know, sitting there and being like, oh, are they going to read my numbers? Or maybe this is the time they read my numbers. So I know I signed up as soon as I could. Here's a question. Do you think there are going to be like lottery pools? Like people are going to get together with their friends and be like, all right, if they call any of our names, <laughs> then we're all going to split the money. Do you I, think it, this is happening? Maybe it, maybe it does encourage every, yeah, I, I don't know. It could be like a, a busload of people decide, hey, we're all going to go get vaccinated and we're going to split the cost for the travel and, you know, whoever, whoever wins, we're going to split the pot that way or something like that. I hadn't thought about that. That's, that's clever. It's like a fishing derby, right? They all yeah. go fish together, and whoever catches the fish, they're going to split the the winnings or something. Um, did, did you so, get signed up? It, yeah. yeah, I wanted to add here that yes, I did sign up this morning. <laughs> Had no trouble whatsoever. So after Chris busted me yesterday for not doing it, I just wanted to say it was easy peasy. But um, you know, I also have to say that I I just got a message a little while ago from Laura Hancock who said apparently the lottery put out some sort of release, but I don't have it yet. I'm sorry. So, so we'll see. I mean, it's safe to say hundreds of thousands of people are signing up and they can sign up, I believe until like two days before the first drawing, which is actually Monday. They'll announce the name on Wednesday, but they're actually doing the drawing on Monday. So they have some time to track that person down. And they've said you can get signed up in the meantime, like every week before the drawing, you could get entered in that week's drawing. So if you're not vaccinated this week, but you get vaccinated next week, then you can enter the rest of the four drawings. All right, we're, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Cleveland getting $30 million less in stimulus money than was originally estimated? And how many other cities have seen such swings? Laura Johnston, you know, Robin Goist has been on Stimulus Watch uh, tracking all this money. And we got these initial estimates, I think, from uh, the Congressional Research Service or something like that. And then they turned out to be a little off, right? They, they all were basically off. So I think every city in Ohio saw swings from about 6% less than expected to 6% more than expected. Most in Ohio are getting less. Cleveland is getting the most total money at about 511 11 million dollars but also saw the biggest drop which makes sense right so the higher figure that came in march was provided by the congressional research service through the house committee on oversight and reform and they foreshadowed it using um initial estimates but that actually used incorrect data and they didn't account for all the eligible metropolitan ohio cities so that's why we're off a little bit um, some cities like Lakewood, Dayton, and Youngstown saw estimates slashed by a higher percentage than Cleveland. Uh, Barberton, Columbus, and Elyria will receive slightly more money than anticipated. Lorraine's is 5.6% above the estimate. And the reason these all changed is because the estimates were based on CDBG money, community development block grants. And that's how they've been specified to distribute st stimulus money. But some cities didn't apply for that kind of funding in 2020 that were eligible, so they weren't on the list. There were also some errors in data sorting, including incorrect population inputs. There might have been some outdated census data. So yeah, we were all counting on this. But when the final numbers came out, those are not going to, to change 
You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, we're going to end with a question um, to Seth Richardson asking about the latest on the 11th District Congressional race, the race to succeed former Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who's now the uh, HUD secretary. We got uh, this big Democratic contest and looks like the two, you know, front runners or so-called front runners kind of, they've made some recent moves, haven't they, Seth? They have definitely made some recent moves. Uh, you know, we saw earlier this week, yesterday, actually, uh, you know, st- former state senator Nina Turner uh, continues to drop ads. Uh, one, that, that's one kind of strategy that I've been a little surprised about when she did her big ad buy uh, not too long ago. Uh, she has kept coming up with you know new content, which costs money, but obviously being the you know odds on front runner and money uh she kind of you know has some money to spend so she came out with a new ad that uh, is basically talking about uh, community policing referencing her time uh, um on the ohio community police relations task force i'm sorry the ohio task force on community police relations and um you know obviously that's going to be something that's pretty you know important to people in the district uh you know the other side though is that Chantel brown cuyahoga county councilwoman and uh you know county democratic party chair put out a release that said, you know, she has officially raised $1 million. Now we haven't seen that totally, um, you know, we haven't yeah, seen the any reporting of deadline isn't, uh, is still yeah. coming up, right? Yeah. So w- once we see the reporting deadline, we'll know what that looks like, but her raising a million dollars after kind of that initial stumble out of the gate, that, that, that's a pretty big deal, I would say, because it does give her some, you know, some more room to play. And obviously she's not making near them. She's not going to be able to keep up on TV. That's just she didn't really loan happen. herself that money. Did she? she? Did. she <laughs> to my knowledge, she did not loan herself. That money. I noticed, you know, her release on that was, uh, uh, threw a little shade at Nina Turner about, you know, her past criticisms of Biden and kind of stressed like, I'm the candidate who wants to work with the Biden administration. That sounds yeah. like that's going to be her big theme is calling out Nina Turner for, you know, uh, trying to trying to make her sound like it's yeah. hard to work with her and and so forth. But. Yeah. So about a week ago, they put out a video that uh, you know was ostensibly a TV ad, but it was a pretty small TV buy, right? So you know, I think it's fair to just kind of call it a video where, uh, yeah, you know, it was saying, oh, I'm you know Chantel saying I am the candidate who's going to work with Biden. I'm not going to fight him on anything, and uh, that that that's who you know this district needs. I, I think you are going to see this race get a little bit uglier um, just because, you know, while everybody likes to see positive races and everything like that, it doesn't uh, that doesn't necessarily equate to winning. And, you know, everybody does want to win. So I would I would expect right. a little bit of negativity going forward. And we should mention there are how many other candidates in this race? Um, uh, I well, I, I, uh, it was 13 <laughs> new filed. So we're, we'll see how many end up on the ballot. There's right, uh, right. There, there's six who are in who have been kind of, you know, pretty uh, uh, consistent in campaigning, you know, Brian Flannery from Akron was the seventh, but decided against running and filing. So we'll see how many end up on the ballot. But I think that, um, you know, we very well could see double digit Democrats on that ballot. No question. Yeah. Okay. Well, that wraps it up. Uh, thanks, Seth. Thanks, Laura. And Chris, we really hope you feel better by tomorrow and, uh, we'll be back to, for more discussion. Thanks. Thanks.